This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. All right, John chapter 14. John's Gospel, chapter 14, is where we want to go to tonight. We want to begin reading at verse 19 through to verse 24. Jesus speaking said, A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest or reveal myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Now, we are continuing tonight. For those of you who don't know, uh, we're in a series of messages all relating to the 12 apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so far, we have looked at eight of them. And tonight, we want now to come into what will be classed as the last four, the last group of four that are mentioned when you go down the list of the apostles. And as I already said this morning, and I repeat it again, that when you come into this list of the last four, three of them, as far as the biblical records concerned, is very, very obscure. Very little, hardly anything. In fact, some of them, nothing is said other than their name. But of course, when you come to Judas Iscariot, the very last one, then he is the most controversial of all. And so my plan is to look at two of these three tonight, and then our visiting speaker next Sunday morning, and then next Sunday night, finish, complete the series by looking at Judas Iscariot. And I promise you, it's very, very interesting because, again, he's the most controversial of all. And so... uh, the, the three that are, the four that are mentioned, of course, is Simon the Zealot, whom we talked about this morning. And then, of course, uh, as we look here, we see uh, these others that are going to be mentioned. Now, these three, along with Judas Iscariot, are always in the third group of four. And just as Peter is always listed first in the first group, and Philip is always listed first in the second group of four, so James, the son of Alphaeus, or James the Less, as he's also called, is always listed first in this third and final group of four. So that means technically he's always listed ninth. (laughs) Now James is referred to as the son of Alphaeus. And in Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and Acts 1, where the lists are recorded, he's also addressed uh, in Mark 15, 40, as James the Less. James the son of Alphaeus, or James the Less. Now, the less here can mean one of two or three things. It can mean uh, that he was perhaps maybe the the least in his family, uh, the last in his family even. 
the youngest in his family. Or it just may simply mean that he was small, small of stature. In fact, some translations is James the Little. So it could be that he's small. Or it may be to differentiate him between James, the brother of John, who was in Christ's inner circle, who was in the top four mentioned in the list. So it could be for any or for all of those reasons. We just don't know. All we know is, is James the son of Ulphaeus or James the less. Now, because he's called James the son of Ulphaeus uh, in Mark 2.14, some have thought that this James the less and Matthew, the tax collector, were brothers because his father was also Alphaeus. But there's nothing in Scripture that we can draw that conclusion from. Alphaeus was just simply a common name. In fact, all these names of all the apostles and their family were all common names in that day. Although James, the son of Alphaeus, is in obscurity, nothing of him is recorded. So we don't know, really, did he ever ask a question of Jesus? Did he ever express an opinion? Did he ever debate a point? Did he ever make a comment? Did he ever say anything profound or silly, as some of the disciples did? Now, we presume he did, but it wasn't recorded, so we can't say. Now, what we can say for sure is that he would have been one of the 70 that Jesus had sent out that time, two by two, and then he became one of the 12, and then finally one of the actual 12 apostles that Jesus chose after a night of prayer up on the mountain. So there must have been something about this man that Jesus felt he was going to be one of my chosen apostles, that his name eventually would end up in the foundations of New Jerusalem. So there was something in him that Christ saw, the potential, whatever it was, Jesus saw that in him, and he chose him. You will have noticed, of course, when you read through the Gospels especially, that whenever it talks about any of the apostles, it doesn't say very much, actually. Really. Not much. And those it does say more about than others, generally it reveals their faults and their feelings. And that's what I love about the Bible. It reveals them warts and all. It shows their humanity. And that encourages us because sometimes we look at them and we put them in this plane and forget that these was common men, just ordinary five-eighths people that Christ chose, but he made something special out of them. And so when you see the warts and all, you see their humanity, you see their faults, you see their feelings, you see their slip-ups, you see the silly things they said and did. All of that is all in the package when you read particularly their lives in the Gospels. And so... God's servants, for the most part, then and now, were in obscurity, by and large. You think of the millions upon untold millions of believers in the world today, all of them serving the Lord in some capacity or other. You know, don't think of serving the Lord has to be behind platforms or on stages. You serve the Lord where you are, at your home, among your neighbors, in your workplace, in your office, on your factory floor, that's where God has placed you and you bloom where you're planted. So most of us are serve God in obscurity. I mean, none of us here are known worldwide. Sure, we're not. We're not a household name, are we? None of us. Apart from our family, some friends that maybe you work with or some companions you have or your friends on Facebook, 
You don't know whether they're your friends or not. But apart from that, nobody knows you. Nobody knows me either. We, we work in obscurity. And that's fine. That's okay. Because God sees what we do. And God holds the record. And God keeps the ledger. And God will give the rewards. So whether we're known, whether we're unknown, as long as God knows us, that is the most important thing. If I was to ask you tonight, and my guess is that probably there's just a few, a very few in here will be able to answer this question. Who invented the World Wide Web that we use every day? Anybody? Sorry? Can't hear you. Who said that? Martin, give that man the prize. Give him the Mars bar. <laughs> Tim Berners-Lee. Who knew? Well, Martin knew. <laughs> but most of us didn't know that. And we work that every single day. All right, who, who's the inventor of Microsoft? Come on. You're bound to know that, surely. Several of you says Bill Gates. Wonderful. But no prizes for that. But I'll give you a prize for this. Who was it with him invented Microsoft? Do we know that? Paul, somebody, you're getting close. You're right. That's the Christian name, Paul. Paul who? Paul Allen. You see, most of us never, ever knew that. And yet, most of us has used Microsoft one shape or another. And, and, and that's often the way it is. Now, when it comes to God's servants, apart from the big popular names that everybody knows, the Billy Grahams of this world, or the C.H. Spurgeons of yesteryear, or George Whitfield, or John Wesley, and all those, uh, we, we have a, an idea, we've heard those names, and we think, well, we know them. They were great evangelists, great pastors, great teachers, Bible scholars, all the rest of it. But who led them to Christ? Do we know that? Well, I know some of them because I've studied that. But by and large, we have no idea. The people who led them to Christ are in obscurity. Hardly anybody knows who they are. But God knows who they are. And God gives them their reward. At the judgment seat of Christ, the place of reward, at the Bema, that's whenever you will get your reward. Should nobody know you? Should nobody know what ever anything you've ever done in your life for Christ he knows and he keeps the record so even though the Bible is silent about James the son of Ophes it says something about his mother mothers by and large can have great great influence in our lives can actually shape our lives now I realize that that doesn't apply to everybody some of you may say, well, David, that's not my story. And I sympathize with you if that's the case. But generally speaking, mothers have a mighty big influence on their children. And in Matthew and in Mark, Matthew 27 and Mark 15, reveal that his mother was called Mary. She was at the crucifixion of Christ. And Mark says that she ministered unto him. And so there was a, a small band of women who followed around Jesus and his disciples and they ministered unto him. In other words, they did practical things. Probably cooked food, maybe did a little bit of laundry, saw that their practical needs were met, and they did it willingly and gladly. And Mary, the mother of James, 
was one of those women. She loved to minister unto Jesus. And so for that, probably that three and a half years, that's what she dedicated her life to, just simply ministering unto Christ and his disciples in the background, in obscurity, not looking limelight, not looking platforms, but just happy to serve the Lord whatever way she could. And perhaps maybe James growing up, because these were young men, seeing that, seeing her, his mother being like that, maybe that's put something into him that he wouldn't care if he was ever noticed, but he would serve the Lord as best he could in whatever way he could. Mary had a servant's heart. Matthew says that she followed him. Mark says she ministered unto him. And so right from the beginning to right to the end, she followed and she ministered unto Christ. She was one of those women in Matthew 27, 55, it says at the crucifixion, and she looked from afar off. She was there. She saw the crucifixion. She never left him. Not like the disciples did. No, no, she was there. And she had a love for the master and just wanted to serve him in practical ways, behind the scenes way. That was what she did. Not prominent, mostly obscure, but she was faithful, she was reliable, she was dedicated, and perhaps James followed her example. Thank God for godly mothers and dedicated mothers and mothers who just want to be a blessing. And, and no doubt she was a tremendous blessing to her son as well. She and Mary Magdalene came to the tomb that says with sweet spices that they may anoint him so she was there right to the very bitter end right going to the grave to the tomb to make sure that that burial that hadn't had time to finish because of the Passover that they her and others would finish the job she would minister unto him right even to his very dead body that's dedication and all they were concerned about was who's going to roll away the stone because it was seated by the Roman authorities. It would be guarded. But nonetheless, never mind that. She was going to be there to do that. And the Bible says, they that honor me, them will I honor. And she was honored. Little did she know, I'm sure, that her son would become one of Christ's great apostles. That his name would end up in the foundation of the New Jerusalem. God found a way to honor her because she honored his son. And if we honor Christ, Christ <laughs> will no doubt honor us in some way. And that, I'm sure, was more than she ever could have wished for and hoped for. But that's what God did for her. What about his death? Well, some say he was stoned to death. Some say he was sawn asunder. We're not 100% sure other than he was, uh, became a martyr. Uh, so he lived his life after Christ right to the end until his life was taken from him. And, uh, and we don't know much about him. He just served God almost in obscurity. 
obscurity. He went out and about and just preached the gospel and won people to Christ. And only God knows all the things he accomplished for the kingdom. God has got a record of all. And God keeps the record on us too. And so whether anybody knows what we do or not is really irrelevant. God knows. And he keeps the record. What about Judas, son of James? This is the third of the most obscure apostles. This Judas, son of James. Not a son of James the apostle. You know, there's a lot of doubling up of names here, you know. Two Simons and two James and so forth. There's doubling up of names. And maybe this is why the Bible sometimes differentiates. But this was not the son of the apostle James. In Matthew 10 and Mark 3, is called Thaddeus. And in Matthew 10, 3, he's also called Libius. And so he's got three names. Jerome, one of the other church fathers, called him <laughs> the man with three names because he had three names, as it were. And so the authorized King James, I know that some of you still use and love it as I do, but I don't preach from it. The authorized King James, Luke calls him the brother, the brother of James, not the son of James, the brother of James. And John's, John's gospel is spoken of as Judas, not Iscariot, to differentiate him from Judas, the traitor. John always called him Judas, not Iscariot. Make sure you, you knew who he was talking about. But Luke calls him the brother of James. Now, if you look that word in the authorized version, it is in italics. And that simply means that there was no word there. They couldn't find the word. So the translators put a word in there to try to make sense of it. Sometimes that worked wonderfully well, but sometimes it didn't work so well. That was their opinion. And so it is really in the original is Judas of James. There's no brother, no son in there. It's Judas of James. But the reason why that was revised is because if, if it's just Judas of James, it follows naturally, because that's the way it was in Bible days, it would be the son of, not the brother of, but the son of James, the son of Judas. And so that son of James, I've gotten the James and Judas there, I've got mixed up. And if I'm mixed up, you're mixed up. I'm sorry about that. But anyway, moving right along, we're talking here about uh, this particular disciple who, again, was obscure as far as the Bible record is concerned. But nevertheless... He was chosen to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and became a great apostle at that. By the way, Jesus had four brothers and sisters too, but he had four brothers. Or more strictly, half-brothers. They had the same mother, but Jesus hadn't the same father. Sure he hadn't. So there was James, there was Joseph, there was Judas, there was Simon. See, all common names. Now, Jesus' half-brother Judas, or Jude, was the one who wrote the little book of Jude. And the writer of the book of James was the half-brother of Jesus also. That's just by the way. The name Judah or Judas or Jude are synonymous. It just means the same thing. It's like calling somebody William or Billy or Bell. We all know it's the same thing. And it's a wonderful name. It's a beautiful name, actually. It means praise. Judah means praise. The only disciple with three names, he is. So Judas then is called Libius. His surname is Thaddeus. And these two seem to be nicknames. But 
this is interesting. Thaddeus means breast child. Labius means heart child. And that might tie on with James the less because he probably was the youngest member of his family and maybe especially close to his mother. He might have been a mommy's boy. Jacob was a mommy's boy, wasn't he? Esau was a man's man. He was, he was the alpha male. He was out there, the hunter-gatherer. But Jacob stayed at home with his mother, probably baked me cakes and the coals. But God turned him into a prince with God. And so maybe, maybe this particular Judas, Thaddeus, Libius, maybe he was sensitive. Uh, maybe he was a, a kind of a quiet, sensitive soul. Somebody who had feeling. And God can use that wonderfully well. And so maybe that's the type he was, tender-hearted, thoughtful. You know, some of them were very different, weren't there? Some were very sensitive, some were very insensitive. Some were quiet, some were loud and opinionated. Some of them, you got your, their opinion whether you want it or not. Somebody says, if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. And I think that's the way some of them there were too, especially Peter. But they're all different in their own ways. And yet the wonderful thing, and this is why I love this, is that the Lord molded them and melded them together as a unit, as his apostles, to go out there and to change their world. And isn't it fascinating to think that those 11 of the 12, not Judas, but the 11 of the 12, that they changed the world. They turned the world upside down. Christianity split the mighty Roman Empire in two. We are here today because of what they did 2,000 years ago. And so we owe them a great debt because they followed Christ and gave their lives for him. In John 14, 21, where we read at the beginning, the New Testament records for us just one moment in the life of Judas, son of James. And this incident happened in the upper room. In verse 21, Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest or reveal myself to him. <coughs> Verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? That's a good question. How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Now, the way Judas asked this question the way he framed this question tells us that he wasn't arrogant or he wasn't puffed up. He wasn't opinionated. He genuinely, sincerely, honestly just wanted to know the answer to that. Why? Why, Lord Jesus, you're vending yourself to us. Why not to the whole world? Now, remember, they believed he was the Messiah and that he was going to usher in the kingdom, his kingdom. But in their minds, that was a political kingdom. It would be a military kingdom. It would be kick the Romans out kingdom. It would be get rid of those pagans kingdom. That was in their mind. It was a material, actual, physical thing. That's all they could think. And here, Judas is thinking, well, why don't you do that now? 
because actually at that particular time, Jesus had just been come, he had just a few days before, had rode into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and they were hailing him as Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And, and everybody was praising and glorifying. It was wonderful. Huh. And they're sitting thinking, well, this is the time. What better time to announce your kingdom? I mean, look, the people are cheering you as you came in. Jesus knew that would change. So they were wanting, listen to me, they were wanting to Jesus to wear his crown. Now is the time to put on your crown. Reveal yourself. But what they didn't know was, before Jesus would put on that crown, he had to go through a cross. The cross would come before the crown. But they didn't see that. They hadn't got that. Even though he had warned them and told them, even at the Last Supper in this upper room, he's telling them that, but they're not getting it because all they can see is a material kingdom. That's as far as they can think. They weren't thinking about a spiritual kingdom, but that's what Jesus came to do, was it not? To set up a spiritual kingdom. In John chapter 7, at the great feast, Jesus' brothers said to him something similar why did you go up to the feast? Why did you show yourself? Nobody does these things except they want to show themselves. And so they were sarcastic because they didn't believe he was the Messiah. They didn't believe that after the resurrection. So they were kind of mischievous in the, in the way they framed that. He's asking the same question, but Jesus answers it differently. Jesus said to these brothers, he says, listen, your time is always ready, but my time's not ready. He says, they won't hate you, but they hate me. And so they went on ahead. But Jesus secretly went up. He secretly went up. And then he showed himself in the midst of the feast and at the end of the feast, but not at the beginning of it. But his question, which is almost similar, but it was asked in a different way. It was asked because he had a different heart. He honestly just wanted to know, Jesus, why aren't you setting up your kingdom right now? There's no better time, he thought. This is it. We're ready. We want this. We're ready to go. They already had arguments of who was going to sit at his right hand and the left in the kingdom. They already taught who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They were fully for it. Let's get this done, they were saying. But that wasn't Jesus' thought at all. Jesus was setting up a spiritual kingdom. A spiritual kingdom. Judas had seen the Lord do so many amazing things. So many healings. He saw him walk on water. He saw him turn water into wine. He saw him turn that bread and feeding 5,000. He saw Liam walking, deaf hearing, blind seeing, dumb speaking. He saw all of that. The very dead raised up. He saw all of that. Ha, huh. surely, surely he is the Messiah. And surely he's going to set up his kingdom right now. But he wasn't. This was not the time that Jesus would reveal himself as the king of the kingdom. His kingdom would come, and he would be the king, but he would be in his throne in heaven. We would be his subjects, and his kingdom would be in our hearts. It would be an invisible kingdom. The only manifestation of it would be through us at this time. Yes, later on, for sure, when you read the book of Revelation, later on, there will be a physical, material kingdom. In fact, <laughs> there's going to be a period of a thousand years where he will reign on the earth. That will come. But that's not what he was planning at that point. 
that's what they were hoping for. But he was talking about a spiritual kingdom. And his answer to them is very, very important, of course. Uh, he said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will reveal myself to him. So what is he saying? Everyone that receives me, everyone that loves me, I will reveal myself to him. And he's not just talking about those men right there and that easy. He's talking about everybody from that point on, all the way down the thousands of years to right today and beyond today. Any man, any woman, any boy, any girl who receives him, who loves him, he will reveal himself to them. And he loves to do that, and he wants to do that. And that's what happens when you and I get born again of God's Spirit, and he begins to reveal himself to us continually. He wants to be enthroned in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. And once he's enthroned in our hearts, then he will reveal himself for sure. One day he will reveal himself as the King of kings and Lord of all lords, and he will set up his great kingdom. But right now, it's in our hearts. So Jesus gives this Judas, son of James, that beautiful, beautiful answer. So I, for one, am glad that he asked that question. And I'm glad he asked it in that sensitive, honest, genuine way, because it meant Jesus could answer him the right way and that we would hear the answer, and that we'd be the recipients of Christ's love and his mercy. Now, Eusebius, the fourth century historian, tells us that Judas, Libius, Thaddeus traveled to what is known today as Turkey, and there he healed Abgar, king of Edessa, on the banks of the Euphrates River. And it caused such a stir and opened such a door for the gospel. It was tremendous. Great results happened. But some traditions say then that finally he was beaten to death for his testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Judas, son of James, Simon the Zealot, James, son of Alphaeus, were the obscurest of all Christ's apostles, and yet every single one of them played their part for the Lord Jesus. Nobody is simply a bit part player in God's kingdom. Every one of us count. Some of us will be obscure for the rest of our lives as far as the kingdom's concerned on earth. But all of us, as far as God's concerned, are vitally important. Listen, my little finger is very important. I wouldn't want to lose it. I wouldn't want to lose my wee toe. I want to keep all my bits. And I'm sure you're the exactly the same. And God has got all his bits on earth, and we're all part of it. And he keeps us, and he uses us. This is why Paul used the analogy of a body, isn't it? That every part's important. He's the head, we're the body. And every part of the body is important. For years and years and years, evolution has said that our appendix and our tonsils were just a vestige of our days whenever we were tadpoles or whenever we were apes or something. Some nonsense. 
no purpose whatsoever the set. It's just a trace of what we were in our evolutionary journey. Nonsense, now they've found out. They are important, there is a reason for it, and there always was a reason for it. And there's a reason for us. There's a reason for us in the kingdom of God. We're not a spare part. We're all vital parts of the great body of Christ. And the trick is to find out which part you are and then play that part. <laughs> and Paul even says that some parts are hidden, but they're important, very important. In fact, maybe the most important in some cases. So, we are the body, he's the head, and he wants to use every single one of us. And he took those bunch of desperate disciples for all their personalities and all their backgrounds and all their weaknesses and all their strengths and all that mess of humanity, he took them and he molded them and shaped them and made them great apostles for Christ. And every single one of us tonight is a different testimony. Some of us came to Christ when we were wee boys and wee girls. Some of us later in life. Some of us never smoked a fag, never drunk a bottle of beer in our lives. Others has. Some lived a decent kind of a life. Others were prolificate. But yet Christ met us and saved us and changed us and sends us out into this world as his people. What a testimony that each and every one of us has of the goodness of Christ. Amen? Amen. God willing, next Sunday evening, we're coming to <laughs> Judas. And we want to understand the story of Judas. It's so controversial. Books and books and books has been written about Judas. The devil would want you to think that Judas got a raw deal. But he didn't. So I want you to come and I want you to hear that story. Because it's important. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that we are part of your great body on earth. And each and every one of us has a role to play in your body. So Lord, help us to find that and to know that and to be that and to do that. And not to look at others with their roles and their abilities and their positions. But Lord, say, here am I, send me. Whatever I've got, whatever way you can use me, Lord, I'm available. And should, Lord, it just be on a factory floor or in a shop working or in an office or in my business or among my neighbors or my family members, whatever it may be, Lord, help me to play my part in your great kingdom. And I'll give you the thanks and I'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.